Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I like to think of it, Dear John and Jake Hub. It's a podcast where two people answer your questions, provide you with dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. So longtime listeners to this podcast will know that one of my dearest dreams in this veil of tears is to be on my all-time favorite economics podcast, Planet Money. And that dream is not coming true. But instead, Planet Money is coming to us, to Dear Hank and John, in the form of Planet Money co-host Jacob Goldstein. Hello, Jacob. John, ask me what makes a great comedian. <laughs> what makes it? Timing. <laughs> How am I doing? I mean, my brother sets a very low bar for dad jokes. And I appreciated that one because you were a little late on the Dear John and Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the inflation joke a few weeks ago. I felt like your brother was kind of horning in on my money dad joke Venn diagram overlap. Yeah, I, I feel like Planet Money does occasionally venture into the dad joke territory. It's almost a, a necessity when you're making jokes about economics. And you are a dad, as I am. <laughs> but that does remind me that Jacob has a book that uh, has just come out as, as this podcast is being uploaded. The book is called Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And it is wonderful for anyone who is interested in money and economics and, and how we came to imagine money together. It's just, it's a phenomenally fun read, which is not something I ever thought I would say about an economics book. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Hey, so before we get to questions from our listeners, I want to ask you a question that we have frequently received from listeners and that we have answered in a way that turns out to be incorrect, I have learned since reading your book. So we've often been asked, like, what is money? How did money come to be? Why do we use money? And our answer to that was that for a long time, people bartered, and that system became clunky, and so people invented money to replace that system. That turns out 
not to probably be true, right? Right. In fact, it is so probably not true that it has a has a name. It's called the myth of barter, mm-hmm. right? The myth that money came from barter. And it's really interesting. I mean, to me, the myth of barter casts money as this sort of cold thing that exists only in trade, right? Only in market exchange, which is reasonable. It's like sort of how we think about money. But in fact, and anthropologists have been pointing this out for decades, where money comes from is actually much more kind of warm and fuzzy and interpersonal and shared than that, which I kind of like. So in lots of traditional cultures, you know, small, non-industrial cultures, there are lots of norms about giving and getting and reciprocity. When you give somebody stuff, what do they have to give you? Uh, You know, some of the most important ones are like if you're getting married, very often there's some set kind of thing where things you're supposed to give people. Cattle are kind of a classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big one is is murder, actually. If you kill someone, uh, then you owe their family something, some set of things. And, you know, what the anthropologists have found is that is really where money comes from, is those norms. And to me, the the big idea there is that money is not some just like cold market-based thing that exists outside of human relationships. It's actually the opposite, right? It's some very deep, like, social agreement that we all come up with that sort of binds us all together. Yeah. And that's one of the things I loved so much about the book is that it humanizes stories about economics and money, which often do feel so cold and distant. And it reminds us that economics is about people and money is fundamentally about people and 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 a set of ideas that that we agree to together which is sort of lovely. Yes. Yes, and also that that sort of set of ideas, you know, money, it keeps changing, right? Sometimes we know we're changing our ideas about money, sometimes we don't, but it's a thing that over time changes as, you know, people's needs and sort of power dynamics in society change. Yeah, it's one of those weird things that is both a reflection of us and that we reflect ourselves back into. It's it's like almost one of those infinity mirrors, you know, where you see like infinite versions of yourself in the uh, in the dressing room. Sure, this is an this is not this is not the best <laughs> metaphor I've ever come up with, Jacob. I don't think I'm, I'm going to go into the metaphor hall of fame for that one. I mean, I love the mirrors. You know, the mirror I like is the one like at the science museum where if you lift one leg, it makes it look like both your legs are lifting. Yes, so that you're like floating in the air. I don't know. I'm off the metaphor here. I'm just talking mirrors now. I, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, which is home to the Mystery Fun House. I don't know if it's still there, but it was like instead of going to Disney World or Universal Studios, if you only had four dollars, you went to the Mystery Fun House <laughs> and they had a lot of those mirrors. It's just as good as Space Mountain. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent a lot of lonely afternoons at the Mystery Fun House. But let's, let's, let's move on to some questions from our listeners. But do, do check out Jacob's book, Money. That's not why he's on the podcast, for the record. He's just a huge fan of Dear Hank and John. The true story of a made-up thing. (laughs) Out now wherever books are sold. This first question comes from Ash, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I was wondering what you would do if you were driving on a lonely road north of Taylor, Nebraska. I mean, aren't all roads north of Taylor, Nebraska fairly lonely? I feel like that was a little bit unnecessary, Ash. Anyway. Tough but fair. (laughs) And you saw a navy blue suitcase lying on the side of the road that, when opened, seemed to contain $60,000 in $100 bills. 
If you were to transfer this money into your bank account, how would you avoid making it look suspicious? Full of cash, Ash. Wow, Ash, congratulations on becoming the protagonist of, I guess, in the good version of it, a comedic <laughs> romp, and in the bad version, like a Coen Brothers movie. Yes, all allusions to people going in wood chippers aside. I have a few <laughs> thoughts about this. I mean, my first thought was like, I went down the whole, like, should you take it? Should you, like, you know, put up flyers throughout Taylor, Nebraska, found blue suitcase? But, you know, <laughs> then I thought there's a pretty high probability that whoever left a suitcase with $60,000 on it by the side of the road is not a good person, was not using that money for good. So maybe the moral thing to do is keep the money. I, yeah, I mean, if it's me, I'm going to turn it in to some kind of official just because I've I don't want to get mess I don't want to get messed up in that. Yes. But that's clearly the right move. How traceable are hundred dollar bills just out of curiosity? I mean, not very, I think. You know, I, I will say, so an interesting big idea to me here is that it seems pretty likely that hundred dollar bills worldwide are certainly largely, maybe mostly used for crime. So mm. th there is this uh, like very mainstream, like Harvard economist used to be the chief economist at the IMF, Ken Rogoff. And he wrote this book a few years ago called The Curse of Cash. And his argument was basically big bills, hundreds, certainly fifties, are, are, they're just crime. They're just for crime, right? That is the point of them. And we would be better off getting rid of them. I'm loving it. So I'm just going to give you like the facts about hundred dollar bills are amazing. So Okay, there are $40 yeah. $100 bills, $4,000 in hundreds for every man, woman, and child in America. Where Where is that money? Nobody knows. Like, that is the whole point of paper money, right? The whole right. point of paper money right. is that nobody knows where it is. Why else would you need $100 bills? A lot of it is on a lonely road north of Taylor, Nebraska, apparently. Yes, yeah, so less than there used to be, but yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> there are some people outside of the U.S. who use hundreds for, you know, good purposes. If you live in a country where the banks are unreliable, where the currency is unreliable, like lots of people keep hundreds under the mattress because they don't have a better option. But clearly a ton of it is crime. I have a vivid memory of the first time I saw a $100 bill. I was 11 years old and I was at B's Barbecue in Orlando, <laughs> Florida. And somebody at the table next to me attempted to pay with a hundred. And the waitress was like, this is B's Barbecue. <laughs> It's just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and there was a big, there was like a big upset and there was a, but I don't remember anything about the fight. I just remember staring at the hundred dollar bill and thinking like, oh my God, it's, it, it's, it's a hundred dollars all at once. <laughs> in one, you could fold it up in your hand and make it disappear. Yeah. I, I, I and of course, like it's the equivalent of like a, maybe a $187 bill today. So it, Very good. it was more money back then, but still. Well, 187 by inflation, but by like how long you would have worked to have to get $100 then versus now is like maybe a more meaningful comparison, right? When you're a kid, yeah, it's like true. 100 times as, 1,000 times as valuable. Yeah, I stole a lot of money from my brother when I was a kid. I heard I mean, that. That was very recent on the show. You guys really... I could never steal $100. Baseball cards. Yeah, we went deep on that. Here is the news you can use, Ash. Thank you for going with us on that journey. But now I'm going to tell you something important. And I hope it's not too late. Don't put that money in the bank. Oh. If you want to get away with it, don't put it in the bank. Banks have to report deposits of over $10,000. So what you should do is just spend it. 
spend it on groceries, spend it when you go out to dinner. You know, inflation is very low. The classic problem with holding cash is inflation erodes the value of your cash. Inflation now is just barely above zero. So just keep it. And for a long time, you'll be able to buy stuff and it'll feel like you're getting it for free because you kind of are. Wow. I didn't know, Jacob, that this podcast was going to be how to get away with major crimes, but I guess it is. Literally, that was basically the question. Is it a crime? I, oh, if you find I the money to keep it? I guess if you, like, if you find $20 on the side of the road and you pick it up, no one would accuse you of stealing $20, right? I'm, I'm with you. We're going to have to get a third host in here who's who's an expert in in law enforcement. This is not legal advice. This is not legal advice. Yeah, not not only is this not legal advice, Ash. I want to be clear that this is not good advice. <laughs> that's not our that's not our brand. That's what we're selling. <laughs> we, we are we are in the dubious advice business. Ash, put all that money in the bank and tell them Jacob Goldstein <laughs> sent you money. The true story of a made up thing. <laughs> I think we should end every question with you, uh, the little little plug of the book. book. No, I already feel embarrassed (laughs) by doing it once. Oh, you've got to get good at that. That's if if I have a piece of advice for you, it's you have to let go of that part of you that doesn't want to plug your book. Well, I'm here, John. John, I'm here. I know. John, this next question comes from Emerson. I'm 23 and I have a friend I've known since preschool. While we've been friends Mm. off and on, we've been through a lot together, even moving from our small town to a big city. She moved again after she got a new job, and I want to keep in touch with her. But every time we speak, she won't stop talking about how much money she makes, which is about five times as much as me. I'm getting to the point where I don't want to talk to her anymore. She's becoming a bit toxic. Should I stop talking to her? Should I tell her to shut up about her salary already? Should I grit my teeth and deal with all the negative feelings in order to keep our friendship going? Neither Ralph nor Waldo, but Emerson. Mm, That's a good name-specific sign-off, Emerson. This is always hard. I feel like there was a time, like when I was in my 20s, the way that we had to deal with this problem was by talking about it. But now it's so easy, (laughs) especially amid a pandemic, to ghost someone. Like, it's so easy to be like, oh, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm just not going to answer that text and then just kind of let the other end of the line die out. I feel like people ghosted me in the 90s. They just like stopped returning my voicemails. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I did have one friend like break up with me. It, wow. I, it wasn't over me bragging about my salary, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> I think you have to talk about it. I think you have to say, look, every time you bring up the fact, first off, this person shouldn't obviously be bragging about how much money they're making. I'm I'm sure that for them, it's a big part of their identity and it's something that they're very proud of and they want to share it with you because they're excited, but they need to have a level of empathy that allows them to understand that that you are not in the same boat. And also like, it's just, uh, it's just gross. It's just, they, they should, they should be able to get the vibe from you without you saying it, but they obviously aren't. So you need to say it like you need to say, I'm sorry. It's so frustrating that every time we talk, you say that you make, I'm trying to imagine what is five times, like $170,000 a year. It's very frustrating. Please don't, like, why mention it? Just buy, just buy lunch. <laughs> like, what do you think? Is that you're what you- are right. I, what you're saying sounds right. I will say, I think you are right. And what you are saying is not what I would do, just because I'm not good at having difficult, frank conversations. And I think what I would do- is just lose touch with the person for a while. Yeah, and maybe that's okay. Uh, Which is not the right thing. You know, there's this famous book that I have not read, but I think of the title all the time. And the title is Exit Voice and Loyalty 
maybe it's or loyalty. As I said, I haven't read it. But like the idea is that like those are sort of three choices you have, right? In, you know, in mm. relationships with people or with institutions. Again, I'm making this mm. up as I haven't read it. And like exit is like my big move. Not in a family <laughs> setting, to be clear, but like that's just what I do. Yeah. And I'm not proud of it. And I don't think it's the best move, but it's it's what I do. And I think it's, I mean, I, I do it a lot too. I, I'm not, what I think Emerson should do and what I would do are not the same thing. I, I want to say what you were saying is clearly the like mature, yeah. healthy, let's have right. good relationships in our lives and work through things move. I feel like you probably know a lot of people who brag a lot about how much money they make just based on where you live and what you do. I certainly know a lot of people who have made a lot of money. And people who, you know, one of my closest friends from college, a good friend of mine from Planet Money, left and started a company and sold it for a lot of money. And he is like the most like low-key sweet guy in the world. I'm not super interested in money, but one does question one's choices at times. Yeah. <laughs> Is that kind of a cul de sac? I, mean, I don't know. No, it's true. Yeah. I, I think it's true. I think that like... I mean, John, like, not to be crass, but like you, I presume, have made a lot of money. Have you ever been on the sort of other side of this in a friendship where the fact that you made a lot of money made a, a friendship awkward to you or to, to an old friend or something? Not really. You know, we definitely have enough money and... And I think all of our friends know know that we have enough money. We tried very hard not to change much about how we were living. I didn't buy like a different car when The Fault in Our Stars became successful or anything like that. Like we tried to keep the same life and keep the same friends. And I think that has allowed it to be minimally disruptive and, and, and also like kind of maximally beneficial. That's nice. In general, whenever we answer money questions, Jacob, I try to remind Hank and to remind myself of uh, this moment in the television program 30 Rock. Love it. Where Jack Donaghy was attempting to make a rhetorical point and, and said, <laughs> say you purchase a gallon of milk at the grocery store, which costs $12. <laughs> and and not knowing what milk costs is an example of like being removed from reality. And Emerson, I think what may have happened is that this person is a little bit removed from reality. And if you can help bring them back to reality, that's great. And if you can't, do what Jacob and I would do. Bail. <laughs> All right, Jacob, we have another question. And this is one of those emergency questions that we really like to answer, but we like to answer them about eight weeks late once the emergency has definitely resolved itself one way or another and we can no longer be of any use whatsoever. Service journalism. <laughs> That's right. This question's from Charlie, who asks, Dear John and Hank, uh, help. I washed my boyfriend's new sheets and now they are pink. Help. This is the greatest thing, Charlie, that has ever happened to your relationship because it's the perfect test of the boyfriend, of the relationship, right? If the boyfriend is good, he will say, thank you so much for washing my sheets, which you totally didn't have to do because they're my sheets. I love them. That's promising. That's a necessary, if not sufficient, component of being a good boyfriend. <laughs> in the alternative, uh, he might be angry that you turned his sheets pink in washing them, which is a thing you shouldn't have to do because he could wash his own sheets. And if he's angry, that is a very compelling sign, if I might say so sorry, but it's an advice show, that he is a bad boyfriend. Yeah, I, I agree. Also, like, they're arguably better. Yeah, 
yeah. right? Like before, before you had white sheets, which show all kinds of stains, and, and now you have pink sheets, which are, which are, I think, better. I feel like other people should do this on purpose as a test. Like if you're in the early part of a relationship, mm. far enough in to be washing sheets, but you know, kind of trying to figure out, like, do I really take the next step here? Just turn the sheets pink and see what happens. I'm trying to think of like when. I first washed Sarah's sheets and when she first washed mine. And I assume that it was uh, around the time we got married. <laughs> so, like, I don't... It's hard to, like, get that get that in as an early test. Different people live different kinds of lives. That's true. That's true. That's true. I think we were definitely engaged, though. I mean, your Victorian norms of <laughs> washing are fine. <laughs> they are very Victorian. They're very old-fashioned. I... I believe that yeah when you when you wash the sheets of another you you have truly truly made a commitment. Our next question comes from Hannah who writes, "Dear John and Jacob, how do you buy a car? I'm not wondering how to transfer money to a party that owns the car that you want, but rather how do you choose the car that you want? I'm trying to buy a new car, but it's a lot of pressure to choose a car that simultaneously expresses your personality and you'll need for the next decade is a reasonable price you can afford, but also, you know, won't break down all the time and cost you lots of money in the future. Please help." Not banana or Montana, Hannah. So I last purchased a car in 2012, and it is at least partly because I found the process so unpleasant that my feeling about buying a car is that I would like to delay it for as long as possible. So please tell me how to buy a car, Jacob. John, I last bought a car in May of this year. Yes, and I loved it. What? I was like, basically, my other job was buying a car. Oh, wow. I um, Well, so uh, for a lot of reasons, I hadn't had a car for a long time. And I got so into buying it that I was thrilled to hear this question. One thing I have often wondered is, like, how do economists buy cars? Like, what cars do economists buy? Like, the people who know the most about oh, that's fun. utility and, and, and whatever. One of the most famous economics papers of the last, I don't know, 50 years or something was called The Market for Lemons, <laughs> uh, Quality Uncertainty and the Market Mechanism by George Akerlof. And the, the idea of this economics paper was, is a, it was about the used car market as sort of an example of markets where one party, one person, one side has more information than the other side. Right. right. So in the case of used cars, the person selling the car knows more about the car than the buyer. Right. And the basic insight of the paper was if somebody's got a car that's a lemon, which is what people used to call a bad car, a car that breaks down a lot, just wasn't put together well, whatever, they're going to be likely to sell that car. And if somebody has a car that's great, they're not going to be likely to sell that car. So, like, fundamentally, if you're buying a used car, according to the logic of this famous paper, there's a good chance you're going to get a bad car. Right. The news you can use version of that, what I have found useful when I have bought used cars is take it to a mechanic and pay the mechanic to look at it. That is the dad advice for buying a used car. Pay the mechanic, whatever, 100 bucks. This was when I bought a used car a long time ago. Uh, and have them look at it and tell you what's wrong with it and how much it would cost to fix it. Uh, that's a pretty good solution to the lemon problem. You're re reducing the information asymmetry, if we want to use the jargon, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe the reason I have found car buying so stressful is that I have always b bought used cars and been like 
keenly aware of that information asymmetry. And that's part of what has made me feel so uncomfortable. Also, uh, just like the physical process of buying a car, at least as I recall, it takes like six hours. It's, it's, it's astonishingly like, 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 I feel like I could buy a dog or a home or like a, a small private island more quickly and efficiently than, than, than I can purchase a used car. And maybe I and that may have changed in the last eight years. Well, so certainly, if you're buying from a dealer, so the you know take it to a shop is like if you're buying it from a person. If you're buying from a dealer, there are things that help, like the internet. I mean, just on the level of like what kind of car to get, like super dead. But Consumer Reports is actually quite good. There's this thing called the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, which is clever because it's insurance companies which have a vested financial interest in you not dying if you get into a car accident, right? So they mm. actually buy cars and crash them and tell you which ones are safe. So that's good. But then also, once you're actually buying the car, there are sites now where you can go and say what kind of car you want to buy and where you live, and they will have dealers send you prices, mm. which is not the fake price in the window, but like an actual price-ish mm -hmm. that you could buy the car for. That, that all makes me kind of want a new car. I'm going to tell you more. Okay. If you're buying a car from a dealer... They will say to you, not how much money do you want to spend on this car? They'll say, what monthly payment do you have in mind? And this is a trap, basically, because they want to like get you into a loan and there's financing and there's fees and the loan might go for a really long time and there might be a high interest rate. So your job when they say, what kind of monthly payment can you afford, is to say, Let's figure out the price of the car, and then we can work out if we're going to do financing or whatever after. Because you mm. want to just get a real price. Mm -hmm. And then, once you say the price, they will say a price. Once you say that, after a while, they will say some price. Then say, is that, like, actually the price I'm going to pay, or are there a bunch of other fees? And then they will tell you all of the other fees. And that's the actual price. And then you can negotiate from there. Jacob, I feel like you have gone full dad and in the same way that my father helps me with every aspect of a major purchase, you have just helped me feel so much better about the day that is likely coming soon when my Chevy Volt becomes untenable. I'm delighted to be useful. Wait, wait. So what car did you end up getting? I bought a Toyota RAV4 Hybrid. Oh. And, you know, Hannah mentioned that she wanted a car that like expresses her personality. And like my first two thoughts when I read that, thought one was like, oh, a car doesn't need to represent your personality. It's just transportation. Right. And the Toyota RAV4 hybrid I just bought is the perfect manifestation of my middle-aged dad <laughs> soul. Yeah, I think there's a very high probability that when my beloved Chevy Volt finally uh, dies, I'm going to purchase a minivan. Oh, that would be a great move. I love minivans. Captain C. Every time I get into my best friend's minivan. Two sliding doors, sliding door on either I know, side. You so don't baller. have to open the doors. Ugh, it's the Cadillac of minivans. There, there are some very nice minivans out there. There's one with a built-in vacuum cleaner. <laughs> That's the kind of experience that I'm looking for in a car. That's... I like that. I like that, like the recognition of the family reality there. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. they know the world we're living in when they put a vacuum cleaner in the car. <laughs> exactly. So it, all in all, Hannah, either get a Toyota RAV4 or get a minivan. That's our recommendation. That's that's how we think that you should express your personality. Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by minivans. Minivans, they express 
a certain personality. And buy $60,000 sitting by the side of the road. If you pick it up, don't put it in the bank. $60,000 in cash sitting by the side of the road. I wish I could be sponsored by $60,000 in cash sitting by the side of the road just north of Taylor, Nebraska. Also, today's podcast is brought to you by Money, the true story of a made-up thing. The new book by Jacob Goldstein. Not actually sponsored by, but I love it. And by Pink Sheets, the perfect litmus test for a new relationship. <laughs> or like a, a, a an older relationship. If I, you're living in 1875. And, which apparently I am. We also have a Project for Awesome message to read from Sam from Minnesota. Thank you. Thank you to those who are staying home to help prevent the spread of COVID. Thank you to those who continue to go into work and who are keeping society going. Thank you for all of your personal sacrifice. We are all struggling and I want to recognize your perseverance and resiliency in a time of constant change and feeling of the future being more unknown than ever before. Thank you, DFTBA. Sam, what a lovely way to spend your Project for Awesome donation. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor. For me, and I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. Booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. Thank you for saying thank you. Our next question comes from Campbell. Dear Jacob and John, I'm currently writing a book and would like to talk about it. The only problem is that whenever I do bring it into conversation with friends, family, strangers, etc., I feel very childish. I only recently gained the confidence to even be able to call myself a writer. I have not yet called myself that, and I have a book coming out (laughs) tomorrow, uh, despite writing for five years. And I feel a lot of conflict in discussing things I'm passionate about because my generation often associates passion with cringe. Mm. It's been very discouraging, especially since I don't really like to talk as it is. Dubious advice is appreciated. Mm -mm, Good. Campbell. 
Yeah, so there is something really difficult about calling yourself a writer. And I think part of it comes from the social order having all these expectations about what constitutes a writer. Some of it comes from the social order really wanting to put people into specific boxes and not really knowing which box to put words like artist or writer into. Jacob, I wonder if it's been different or weird for you. I mean, you're publishing your first book tomorrow, like trying to think of yourself or call yourself a a writer as you're promoting this book, as opposed to, I mean, you've been a journalist for a long time. Yeah. Yes. I'm definitely more comfortable thinking of myself as a journalist than as a writer, although for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, for me, the important thing is not the sort of identity, like what am I thing, but rather just finding work that I like doing more or less when I'm doing it, right? Like not every day, uh, but basically work that I like doing. And and in the context of the question, finding people who know how to do the work that I'm doing, who are struggling with similar things, who I can talk to, not in great big abstract ways, but in really specific ways. Like I'm having this particular problem where there's this narrative that's supposed to happen, but also I have to explain whatever fractional reserve banking. And so how do we keep the story going while also explaining fractional reserve banking? And people who have worked on those kinds of things and can help me solve them. Those are my real people, my real talk-to-about-work people. And so, Campbell, I hope you can find people who are in some way doing the kind of work you're doing and and talk with them about your work. I, I feel like that's the most promising sort of place to look. Yeah, that is so much of where I get joy in work is in collaboration. And not just in collaboration with, like, people I know. I mean, if you think about writing a novel as an isolating or solitary experience, but really it's not because not only am I collaborating with like people in my family, my friends who are telling me stories and saying things to me, I'm also collaborating with lots and lots of people. I'm collaborating with people who died 500 years ago because like their thoughts are in my mindscape. And that sense of like building something with people in conversation with people in response to people is so much of where the joy of making stuff comes from for me. And it's why I still like making YouTube videos. It's because I get to, I mean, I can say this because my brother isn't here. Like it's because I get to collaborate with my brother. It's such a joy to have him to, to talk to about work that like the work itself is almost incidental. The joy is, is being with him and being interested in the same stuff together. All passion. No cringe. Yeah. No cringe. No cringe. No cringe. That's the, yeah, no cringe. And, and I know that there's a thing now where sincerity or earnestness is treated as cringe or trying too hard or whatever. Try hard. I know that that's an insult now, but like, try hard. That's great. I think that should be celebrated. All right, Jacob, we got another question. This one comes from Robin, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my friend decided to throw a birthday party for her dog. The date of the party is on my birthday. I have told my friends many times when my birthday is, but none of them care enough to remember. Should I go to the party and not say anything to see if any of them will remember? Or should I tell the host that that day is my birthday? Oh, boy. Robin. (laughs) Oh, geez. I mean... I don't think anyone who loves me knows when my birthday is except for my spouse. Happy birthday, John. Let me be the first to say happy birthday. I don't know if that's a comfort to you, Robin, but like, I don't know. I feel like unless you tell people that your birthday is coming up, they never know. Uh, Or unless they're frequent Facebook users. She she told them, though. Can we go back to the text? She told them many times. 
That's true. She did tell them many times. I mean, this one does remind me of the friend who made a lot of money one, right? Like, it's another one where it's like, here is this uncomfortable thing. Do you bring it up? Wait, what are those three ideas from that book that you didn't read? I really like that. Exit, voice, loyalty. Exit, voice, loyalty. I am also going to not read this book, but be deeply inspired by it. Right? It's just like, it's just there on the shelf of your mind, even if it's not on your actual shelf. So what is loyalty in that? I know what exit and voice are. Loyalty in in this case means you just go to the party and you don't say anything, right? So exit is like bail. We're not friends anymore. Voice is like, hey, it's my birthday, like I told you so many times. Mm -hmm. And loyalty is you just go. I'm probably going to just go to this birthday party and I'm going to celebrate this dog and then I'm going to go home and be a little bit sad, but also happy that I no, I would just be sad, probably (laughs) like right as the day is about to end. And I think I'm going to make it through. I'm going to break down and text one of those friends and say, you know, it was my birthday, too, not just Rovers. First of all, no dogs are actually named Rover anymore. (laughs) I have this campaign to stop generically referring to dogs as Rover. A. What's a good what's a good generic dog name? Let's let's do it right now. Let's rename Rover. I mean, I don't want it to be Jake, but it's maybe uh, for personal reasons. Okay, no, I like this. Buddy. How about Buddy? Buddy. There are a lot of dogs named Buddy. Right. There's two dogs in my neighborhood named Maya. Maya, that's not a dog name. No, it's a human name. And I don't know, I don't understand why two different people name their dogs Maya. Well, I like Buddy. We've talked about, like, what's the least dog name, my wife mm. and I like. what We've got a dog, we're like, what if we name him Justin? Yeah, I've never heard of a dog named Justin. Right, exactly. Jaden. I, I feel like any name that starts with J and ends with N is a bad dog name. And I'm not just saying that because I am named John and I don't like dogs named John. Dog names tend to end with like E sounds like Buddy or uh-huh. Maggie or Libby or things like that. Okay. Like Yeah, like kind of diminutive, right? There's a little bit of a diminutive right. vibe, yeah. That's it. We're, Rover okay. is over. Rover is definitely over. We live in the Buddy era now. Buddy. September 1st, 2020. It's the beginning of the buddy era, which also is going to be a turning point. We solved all the problems except the negligent cruelty of Robin's <laughs> friends, which we'll save for another day. The buddy era is going to be so much better than the Rover era. Oh, thank God. I mean, we're going to look back on September 1st, 2020. As- this is it. John, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I'm going to be honest. I've been uncomfortable and a little bit scared. And now for the first time in months, yeah. I feel hopeful. I do too. We're in the we're in the buddy era now. Things are going to be so much better. <laughs> Just get, I mean, I think it's definitely going to get worse. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't get all the way to oh, happy wait. birthday, dear buddy. Robin, it just occurs to me that critically, Jacob and I Failed to wish you a happy birthday. Happy birthday, <laughs> we, Robin. Happy birthday. And Buddy can... Happy birthday. Buddy is nothing to us. Yeah. It's all you, Robin. And also, I mean, do we really even know Buddy's birthday? Or is that just like the day Buddy came home and they celebrate the anniversary, etc.? Like the day they adopted him or whatever. It's not even his real birthday. It's not. It's not. But and it Robin, is... Robin, it's your real birthday. This is your day, Robin. Happy birthday. We have no idea what you should do with your friends. All right, Jacob, it's time for the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I, I know that you've listened to the podcast some. I don't know if you have any Mars news prepared, but just in case you don't, I'll give you a second to Google some while I share with you the thrilling news from AFC Wimbledon. Big guys with little butts or little guys with <laughs> only, big butts. Which is it going to be? Only two kinds of soccer players in this world. So when you're like a Premier League club, like a big, you know, international brand 
the moment you release your like new kit every year, your home and away jerseys is, is this huge event and it's a big deal. And usually for Wimbledon, it's not a big deal because <laughs> the release of the jerseys is identical to the previous year's jerseys. Like maybe they change over like every three or four seasons. Not really a release when you put it that way, is it? <laughs> but this year... There are not only are there new jerseys, they are amazing. Wow. Like, I, I'll admit to being a little bit biased, but because this is the season that Wimbledon is going back to Plow Lane, there are all kinds of like visual Easter eggs in the jersey that reference moments from Wimbledon's past over the last 120 years. And on the back of the jerseys, in like small, really cool letters, it says back to Plow Lane. And the, oh my God, it's such a good, wow. it's such a good jersey. Mazel Tough. The away kit is is a really bright, lively yellow. I have I have never been so excited to get my annual AFC Wimbledon jersey. I, I can't recommend going if you live in London and you don't have an AFC Wimbledon jersey. What are you even doing with your life? <laughs> do you have any news from Mars? You know I do, John. I um. Oh wow. I I don't know a lot about Mars, but I know how to call up experts and get them to tell me the news. That's literally my job. Oh, wow. So that's what I did. Oh, my gosh. You did reporting. I did. I did. I'm literally a reporter, and I literally did reporting. That's the first time we've ever had reporting on this program. Yeah, I'm literally a reporter. Here, hold on. Should I just play it for you? Yes. Can you say your name and your job, please? Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Addie Dove. I am an assistant professor in the physics department at UCF, and I do planetary science research. So if I want Mars news, can you help? <laughs> I can help, yes. Great. I c- yeah. Addie told me about the Mars InSight lander, which has been sitting on the surface of Mars since 2018. It has this really cool arm that actually deployed several of the instruments. Sort of, we always think of it like the claw, you know, when you play the claw game. And it's got this really awesome, really high sensitivity seismometer that sits on the surface of Mars and looks for Mars quakes. Is there news from this seismometer that's sitting there on the surface of Mars? There is some news. Uh, So Mars has these two moons. So we have one moon here on Earth, the moon. And then Mars has two little teeny tiny moons called Phobos and Deimos. And actually, like, Phobos's orbit is decaying. So it's actually going to fall into Mars at some point. Addy says these moons are so small that when they pass between Mars and the sun, there's not an eclipse or anything. They just block a tiny bit of light and make it a little cooler, like on Earth when a cloud passes in front of the sun. And there's this new paper, this is the news part, where scientists use the seismometer to measure what happens to the ground when Phobos passes in front of the sun and the ground gets cooler. And so as it gets cooler, the ground actually moved a little bit just because it basically like it shrunk a little bit, right? It's a teeny, Uh teeny, teeny, tiny amount. Okay. Wow. And what is the implication of that? Like, what does that tell us? So so why does that matter, right? I Um, I wasn't going to be that blunt, but yeah. So what? (laughs) So it's it's interesting because it actually gives us better data about Phobos itself. So it tells us more precisely what Phobos's orbit is if they can do these measurements. Um, And so, and those are the models we use to say how long we think it'll stay in orbit and how long until it crashes toward the surface. It's still unclear exactly how long Phobos has, but order of magnitude is like tens of millions of years. Oh, that's a big relief. <laughs> thanks so much. It was fun okay, to talk to you. Thanks. Bye. You too. Bye. You can sleep easy. Okay. Oh my God. That whole thing is so it's that, that, that this is amazing. Jacob, you made me a miniature little not about economics planet money episode for Dear Hank and John. 
This is, I, I, I'm having the best day. That was, that was so cool. Also, I'm, I'm, for the record, I'm very relieved that that moon isn't going to uh, crash into Mars for tens of millions of years. That is, that is a, a, a good... It's a load off, right? It's yes. one less thing to worry about. It's a huge relief for me. I have a lot of Mars-related anxiety that my brother has caused, and now at least one of those problems has been solved. Next time he waves the Phobos crashing into Mars, you know, <laughs> red cape in front of your face, just be like, tens of millions of years, hey, back off. I love it. Thank you so much for that. That was just amazing. Yeah, it was fun. And thank you so much for, for potting with me. Oh, it was great, John. It was so kind and generous of you to have me on. It was really fun. I love your show. Well, thank you. And Hank and I both love Planet Money so much. And thank you for all of your great work there. And congratulations on your book. It, it's a great book. Check it out. It's called Money. The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosian Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of communications is Julia Bloom. The music that you're listening to uh, right now and also at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome. Don't forget to be awesome. <laughs> that was great. Yeah.